Let's turn to the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. This is the book that, if anything, you're going to read about God and his passionate love for his people and the hurt of God and his pain that he suffers for his people going astray. You have to read the book of Hosea because it's not so much academic. If you're looking for academic things, I guess you can find them. But in the book of Hosea, you can't get away from God's passionate love for his people. And one of the things it's really interesting is God's faithfulness and the people's idolatry. And that's our message today. God's faithfulness and people's idolatry. And before you can think, well, that's idolatry. It's got to be some, you know, some pagan symbol you have in your, in your house or a statue that you pray to or something like that. Idolatry, it's much bigger than that. It's much wider than that. And it's not found necessarily in altars or geography, geographical locations, it is found in the human heart. And that is the place that Hosea is going to expose uh, Israel. It's going to expose our hearts. It's going to expose the hearts of those who read it, because you can't get away from Hosea. And we're not going to get into the whole aspect of Hosea today. The first three chapters are fascinating. We'll do that next week. But just to give you a background and some of the major, major themes that you need to be looking at. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is one passage that I would uh, I'll read very quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 2 reminds me a lot, and I think the Apostle Paul, um, it's alluding to something in the book of Hosea. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure with him, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, we shall also deny, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Lord, such beautiful scriptures that you've given us about your faithfulness. Help us to learn, and more about, learn more about your faithfulness, Lord, and how desperately unfaithful, Lord, we can be and we have been. Please give us, Lord, more grace to be able to be faithful, especially in days like this where people are so faithless and unfaithful. We ask you for your spirit to lead and guide tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. To look at the whole Bible, it's probably the best way to study it. In my opinion, um, Christian churches as a whole, in general, uh, do very good about teaching specific doctrines, specific frameworks, specific uh, points of theological points. But sometimes they don't do a very good job of explaining the whole plan of God, because it's there in the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, the headphones, as we talked about it in our church, listening to both. And it's to understand the prophets, is to understand in what context do we understand each individual verse, each individual book, where is that book located, is it in the Old Covenant, is it in the New Covenant, how do we interpret the Old in light of the New? What's the whole plan of God from Genesis to Revelation? Where are we going? <laughs> you know, we know where we've been. If we read the Old Testament, we know that the scriptures are there. But where are we going with this? Where is the plan of God? What is the ultimate result? And we have to look at the whole Bible. And it's, it's, it, we have a term. It's a, it's a theological term, but it's not that hard to, to, to understand. It's the meta-narrative. Meta means a lot. And narrative, it's the narrative of the scripture. What is the meta-narrative? What is the purpose of God's word, the entirety of it? 
looking at the Bible from a whole perspective, not individual verses, not individual theological points. And when you do that, a lot of things begin to make sense because we have to understand Hosea in the context of the whole Bible. Where is Hosea? Where is he writing from? Who is he writing to? What time is he writing at? These are things that are important to understand because many people will take the Old Testament prophets, specifically the minor prophets, and begin to apply what they say to the nation in which they live. And one example would be some of the things Amos, some of the things Zephaniah, or even Hosea says about their own government, their own political leaders, and they begin to say, well, see, that's, that's, you know, that's for us right there, and they begin to uh, apply it to the nation of America. And you have to remember that in Israel, the government, the judicial government, and the religious authorities were one and the same, meaning that if you were born into Israel, you were born into the state, you were born into Judaism, you were part of the Jewish people. Uh, that was all the way up to the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, it's not like that. It's not a state religion. You're not born into Christianity because you were born in America. The, uh, the state in the, the, in the New Testament, the judicial state, and the people of God, the, uh, the spiritual state, are completely different. Uh, I know that the, the Catholic Church was like that. I know part of the Reformation, they tried to make it like that. But the New Testament doesn't allow for that. Jesus said, give to Caesar what's to Caesar, give to God what's to God. There's always been a separation of God's people. But in Israel, it was not like that. So when it, Hosea speaks to the government, he's speaking to the leadership in Israel, it's rightly so. They were one and the same. Spiritually and judicial were the same. In America, it's not like that. We can't apply some of these things to the government. We can't say, look how awful they are. They don't care about things. According to the Bible, they should be not oppressing the poor. The principles should be the same. But we should always start with the church. In the New Testament, these verses would apply to the members of the body of Christ, individual believers. The church as a whole would be more applicable instead of throwing these verses to the government and say, get your story straight, get your things straight, we should look at the church and say, boy, we don't have it straight. We need to get it straight. Before we can look at the governments and say how awful they are and how terrible they are, we should look at the church and all their, uh, the, the, the availability of false teachings and what they've done uh, with uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ, with the gospel. That's where we should begin. As Peter would say, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It's never about the government. It's always about the state of the church. If the healthy church in America, if there was a healthy church in America, the government would be healthier. That's, that's the reflection of it. But when the church doesn't have it straight, what can we expect from the unbelieving world? And there's one amazing theme in the passage of Hosea is this, the word hesed, hesed. You pronounce a C-H like a ch, like if something was on your throat. Chesed. And it's a fascinating word, and it's going to be all throughout the book of Hosea. It's one of the main themes. It's a difficult word to translate from English, and I'll do my best because we need like five different words in English to describe such a beautiful word in Hebrew. It literally means a covenant love, a love between God and his people through the covenant. 
Now they had a covenant, Israel had a covenant, it's called the Old Covenant. And that covenant uh, signified that they were his people and God was their God and they were in a covenant relationship. You can translate the word hesed as love, but we miss because we obviously think of love as some emotion that you feel today. You love ice cream, you love your dog, you love your wife, you love things like that, and you think, well, that's a, that's a word that covers a lot of things, dog, ice cream, and my wife. Well, obviously, there's different things in loyalty and commitment to each one. If you're committed to eating ice cream, that's one thing. If you're committed to your dog, if you're committed to your wife, there'll be different levels of commitment. Hesed has that faithful, loving kindness that God has for his people that enter into a covenant relationship with him. It's a long explanation of a simple word, but try to explain agape or charis in the New Testament, uh, love and grace. It's very difficult to just say love and grace because it means it has so much deeper meaning. Therefore, hesed in the, in the, in the Old Testament has the idea of loyalty, commitment, faithfulness, not an emotion, but a sticking to it sticking to it despite the circumstances. That's a long explanation, but that's what it means. Uh, it's translated different ways in the scripture. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end, right? Chesed, his steadfast love. It's a continual love. It, it just doesn't come and go on feelings and emotions. It, it is a commitment that God made to be the God of his people. And he's not letting go. You can say that if people reject God, it's not because God rejected them. It's because they rejected God. God has steadfast love. It's a covenant love. And it's a commitment. And that's the same commitment that the Bible talks about in terms of marriage. Marriage is the same type of commitment. A steadfast love. A commitment of loyalty. Most people think, I'm in love you know, you're going to marry a girl, I'm in love, and it's some kind of emotion, right? We, I think of love as an emotion. The Bible doesn't put love as an emotion. It puts love as a commitment. Loyalty and faithfulness. That's why we have those vows, right? We still do vows in marriages? I don't know. They're going to be legal one day, right? The way we're going, no, no vows. You know, but the vows are for richer, for poor, right? Remember when they used to say those things, right? Uh, the commitment that no matter what it, what it was, no matter what we enter into, we're going to be faithful to each other and we're going to stay committed to one another. And that is love. And I tell newlyweds, you know, think of love and you think of, you know, your husband going on the beach, riding a horse, you know, and, and bringing, you know, breakfast in the morning in bed and, and that'd be wonderful. But that's not the idea. That's not real. Uh, do you know what, what marriage is? Is diapers and strollers and vomit in your shirt because of the babies and getting up at three in the morning and then you're in love. <laughs> then you're committed to one another, right? Because that's real life. You know, we've had more strollers than dates. We've had more, you know, I think my wife's here. More strollers and more diapers changed than anything else and, uh, but we love each other. And it has never been on the basis of some emotional attachment that we have. It was 
when I went on to the altar, when she went on on the altar, I was making my commitments to the Lord. Not necessarily to her, not necessarily to her, but first to God and then to her. And because of that, it's a hesed, it's a commitment of loving kindness. And Hosea had to experience this. We'll get to that next week. God tells him to go marry Gomer. Let's read the first three verses and uh, sets up the whole story for next week. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah. Now, history is a very important part of, um, of, of the Old Testament. And we'll talk about this at length next week. I hope I don't bore you enough with the history. But this happened, it tells you when it happened. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. You ever heard of those guys? They're in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, sorry, 2 Kings as well. And, um, and they are kings of Judah. And in during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So it tells you that there's a problem in the people of God. Right away you see Judah and Israel. There's a division, right? He lived at the time of a very divided place. Uh, we live in a very divided nation as well, by the way. We live in a very, very divided land. Um, we still have one president, but there's a lot of people who say he's not my president and all this stuff, and they live like it, and, and there will be a lot of um, you know, repercussions through that. But in the days of Hosea, it was the same way. Israel was not one. The Jewish people that were set apart by God were divided among themselves. Hosea is from the north. He's from the north. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said, Hosea, go take your wife, a harlot, and have children of harlotry. I'm sorry, Lord. What did you say? <laughs> I've been a good Jewish uh, boy. I've been a good Jewish man. I've been following the law. I'm keeping your word, and you're telling me to go marry what? Who? Yeah. And have children with her, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he did and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibiam, and she conceived and bore him a son. We'll leave that for next week, all the details about it. But God began to show Hosea unfaithfulness in his own marriage. Gomer did not stay faithful. She was a harlot. She, he married her, and he went out. She went out of the marriage several times. And God told Hosea, go bring her back, love her, take care of her, nourish her back to health, and she's going to leave again, and then bring her back, and love her again. And that was Hosea's task. Now, Hosea, now if you know how to love somebody like that, you're ready to preach. From chapter 4 to the end of the book is Hosea's message of what he learned in the school of the Lord. The school of the Lord is sometimes very painful. I call it the black and blue school. You know what I'm saying, black and blue? It's hard to have a message unless you've been through what God has been through. Hosea, now you know what I feel. I had a people that I love very much. And if you ever have somebody that you love very much and did not return that love is the most painful experience you probably ever have. And I know some of you guys have experienced that. But I know God has experienced that. Hosea, now you know, now you have a message. Go tell my people that they've been unfaithful. 
they've been a harlot. And it comes with this thread all throughout the Old Testament that harlotry and adultery are in equal status. It's basically um, being an idol worshiper away from God, going into idolatry, is like going into adultery. You're messing around with another God. Jesus said the same thing in the New Testament. Um, Paul, quoting the Old Testament, told the Corinthian church that that was, that was going on in them. To learn from the Old Testament, to learn from the past. But in order to learn faithfulness and understand what God had for men in marriage, you have to go back to the beginning. This is why it's a whole kind of study. You can't just go, okay, Hosea, you know, whatever, move on, New Testament, move on. You have to remember, where did marriage come from? The idea was, it's in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2. You had one God, one man, one woman to become one flesh, and you have one story, and this thread continues throughout the whole Bible that they need to be one. One. And the word, again, um, don't want to confuse you too much with Hebrew today, but achad, a oneness, where two can become one person. And in marriage, it mirrors the perfect oneness of God. Here, O Israel, the Lord is one, achad, a oneness, a multiple oneness, a component, right? God is one. Married couples, in this case would have been Adam and Eve, they are one. The two shall become one flesh. It's a plural within the unity. And this is God's means throughout the whole Bible. They are individuals who don't lose their individuality, but they are in unity in marriage. That's what God began. So to understand Hosea, you have to understand the meaning of marriage. What did God mean when it says, Hosea, your people, your wife, it's like Israel. Well, what was she doing that Israel was doing? They were becoming a harlot. The, the, Gomer was an immoral woman. But is God going to cast her away? Not Israel. God was going to bring her back and love her back. Despite the fact that Israel kept going away and away and away from God. Unfortunately, most of the Jewish history is like that. God has loved them. God has been faithful to them. And the Jewish people have been stiff-necked and gone away from God. But even at the end of the book, even at the end of the Bible, you see this beautiful story of Revelation, where it ends with the wedding. Begin at a wedding, you end at a wedding. It's God's picture for us to understand what he wants from us. This is not academic. You know, we can talk about all the academic stuff. We can talk about theology. But Hosea is not about that, although you can make a lot of interesting insights and things like that from the book. You have to realize God's relationship with us is as of a marriage. He wants us to be united with him. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment because in the Jewish wedding, we talk about this part called the sanctification, the kudoshim, kadosh. We would have seen kadosh as another Hebrew word, yeah. Um, the word kadosh just means holy. The most famous part of being holy, it's in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah goes into the temple, and he sees the glory of God. Holy, 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 Lord! it's the Lord God Almighty. And he sees himself as a sinner, unholy. 
but he sees this holiness of God, and then an angel comes, takes the coal from the temple, from the altar, and burns his lips, and he became known as the prophet with the burnt lips, right? But it was a purification. It was signifying that man is sinful, God is holy, but God can touch us and sanctify us. And the idea there is purity, and in the midst of commitment, there's a setting apart that God sets apart his people. Just like in marriage, you're set apart for your wife or your husband. That's the idea of marriage there. It's the ultimate oneness with the sanctification. You are set apart for each other. You're set apart for one another. And that is the key to understand, really, marriage. If you can get that oneness, two individuals becoming one, and being set apart for each other. That's the word kadushin, sanctification. God sets you apart. The word sanctify, we're being sanctified. It's part of our salvation. We're being set apart for God. We used to be set apart for the world and for sinful habits, but now we're set, we are set apart for, for God, sanctification. It's a way of a husband and a wife will set each other apart um, for, the, for, for one another. They don't go around with other people. That would be adultery in biblical terms. In the Old Testament, it would have been harlotry, going after other gods, and that's what Israel was doing. But it, remember, Israel had come out of Egypt under Pharaoh's domain, into God's domain. From Egypt to Sinai, God had a relationship with Israel, and that's what he wanted him to do. He wanted him to come to himself, and in Sinai, in the book of, in the book of Exodus, Sinai, the Mount Sinai, it becomes the wedding chapel, I guess you can call it. It's where God brought her to himself. And in that mountain, God committed himself to Israel. He said, I will be your God. I will take care of you. If you follow me, I will take care of you. I will lead you. I will take you to the land of milk and honey. It's almost like a husband telling the wife, if you marry me, I am going to take care of you. And all the wife has to say is, I do. Right? And what did Israel say? When God gave them the covenant, we will keep it. Sort of. But they committed. God committed. She committed. Israel committed. And remember, in a Jewish wedding, we had this thing called the chuppah. The chuppah. It would have been nice to have one at Serge's wedding. And it uh, would have been like a, a tent, literally. And the idea comes from when God brought them to Sinai. On the mountain, God gave them the law. They said, yes, we'll follow the Lord. And what was over them was the cloud, right? It was the cloud. It was the glory of God that covered them. And so in a good Jewish wedding, they, uh, they have the chuppah. They get married. The idea is get, getting married under the glory of God. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it's wonderful to think that God is over this marriage, to think that God has sanctified them for each other, and he's over the marriage, and they are under the canopy of the Lord. And of course, the husband and wife, they go and they move in together. And uh, that's what happened to Israel. God and Israel moved in together. They had a home. It was a tabernacle. They called the tabernacle the meeting place. Will you go to the tabernacle? I will meet with you. That was their home. And they were learning how to worship a holy God. But it's interesting. Something else happened, didn't it? Uh, from Sinai to the end of Revelation, you have this thread of marriage. And in the middle of that road, 
around 760 BC, you end up with the book of Hosea. So that's one way to understand it. Because Hosea is going back to that event. You have to go back to that event. Didn't you, Israel, marry the Lord in Sinai? Didn't you commit yourself to him? Then stop cheating on God. (laughs) But that's the reality of it. That's Hosea's message. And boy, did he know it because he could have turned around and told that to his wife. Stop cheating on me. Stop. Now, Israel wasn't very good about this message. They continued on in their harlotry. What God wanted was high fidelity. Now, this is high fidelity in music. We talk about hi-fi. You know, ever heard of hi-fi? Okay, high fidelity in music. But God was more interested in high fidelity in marriage. That's what God wanted. See, God provides all the things for his people. What God wants for in return? Obedience. Obedience and faithfulness. Could you remain faithful? Would you remain faithful to the God who brought you out of Egypt? Can you remain faithful to me, is what God would say. It's what Hosea would have said. By the way, Hosea, the word, we would have said Hoshea in Hebrew, Hoshea. It has the same root meaning for Isaiah. Ishayahu would have said that. But it's also the same root word for Yeshua, the way the Jewish people would have said Jesus, salvation. Hosea has a message of salvation, of hope, of faithful, that God who is faithful is not going to let you go and will bring you back. Now, there's a commitment that Israel has to make. They have to call on the Lord. Not all the Jews have. Not all the Jews will. But the promise of God to the children of Abraham is still the same. He will bring them back. He will make them remember this covenant that they made, and he will bring them to the place where they made that commitment. And the prophets were all about that. In fact, when we go through the minor prophets, you'll be like, again? You bring this stuff again? Yes, because it was on and on the message. Remember, you married God in the wilderness. You were faith- he was faithful to you. He'll remain faithful to you. You need to come back to your marriage. In fact, what, one interesting thing, when we counsel uh, couples, struggling couples, one of the things we always go back to is remember your vows. Remember what you said that day. You know, in some cases it does help. People get straightened up. They go, oh yeah, I remember that day. Sometimes it's not easy to remember that day, but do you remember your vows? Remember what you said? Remember what you said to God? Remember what you told them? What does that mean anymore? You know, it should be said vows should be, be more like, well, I'll stay with you until I find somebody that makes me happy or you stop making me happy. That's as, far, that's as long as I'll stay. That's the vows today. The vows before the Lord are quite different. In fact, in the New Testament, we see the same thing. God in Israel and Jesus in the church. It doesn't, the, the, the commitment level doesn't stop because that's the old covenant. God was married to Israel, but Jesus is a bride. That's the body of Christ. That's the people. That's you and I, my friend. That's born-again believers. We are betrothed to Christ, Paul said. He's looking for a bride that is without spot or wrinkle. He is sanctifying us to himself. Just like Israel had all all these temptations. We had all these temptations. So Paul makes the case. Remember 
your commitment. You remember, you need to be faithful to Jesus. Especially in the, in, in the book of Corinthians, in the two letters to the Corinthians. Um, at the end of the Bible, you, you have this, uh, this city. Remember what the city's called? The city's called a, a bride. A bride. It was a perfect cube. Remember, it was a 1,500 miles? We talked about that when we talked about the New Jerusalem. 1,500 miles cubed. Would it remind any Jew about the tabernacle? was cubed. The Holy of Holies in the temple was cubed. That, thus, closeness to God, relationship to God, commitment to face-to-face -face with God in those places, the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle. Well, the closeness to God's going to be forever in the New Jerusalem. And she's a bride. So you, it's almost like John can't express really what's coming down. It's a city that's so beautiful and is connected to the people of God, the bride. And so it's almost trying to explain this wonderful city coming down and the people in it, they're going to populate the city, are his bride. And John says, it's like, it's like a bride. <laughs> she makes herself ready for her husband. And so when we look at Hosea, we have to look at it this way. Um, does anyone here wear bifocals? Does anyone wear? Okay, very good. One example. Uh, I was, <laughs> uh, we need to have bifocals. Scott, you too? All right. We need to have bifocals when we read the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean you go get one tonight or prescription. But what I mean by is you have to read Hosea and understand what it meant for the Jewish people at the time that Hosea was writing to. Who were they? What they were going through? What issues that they had? And then you just lift up your eyes a little bit, and then you see believers today and the application for us today. Remember, it was written to them. It was not written to us. We can't apply every single one of those things specifically because it's not to us. I didn't live in the 8th century in Israel, but it was written for me. It was written for us, says Paul the Apostle. All these things were written for us, that through the learning of their mistakes or difficulties or trials, you may have hope to see a God who's faithful, to see a God who doesn't give up on people, to see a God who's willing to go and persevere through people's sins and idolatry and immorality and win them back. Now, there's got to be a response from people. Israel did not respond very well. And there were times of goodness or times of disobedience. More times of disobedience than not, if you think about it. But they were God's chosen people. People say, what? I mean, aren't they privileged? Chosen in the Bible doesn't ever mean it's easy. <laughs> it's not talking about a superiority complex. Israel wasn't superior to other nations. If you read what Moses said and what the prophets said, they said, I didn't choose you because you're great, you're awesome, you're holy, you're some great people. I chose you because I chose you. I love you. I just I wanted to bring a nation into this world that is going to communicate my message in a vehicle to the whole world of who I am and my plan of salvation. That's the chosenness of Israel. It did not mean that every Jew was going to be saved. The choice, choice was not for salvation. You obviously saw several Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the, 
the, the, the, the, the, the uncircumcised of the heart, as Jeremiah called them, not obtain what they were separated for. But they were chosen to communicate the gospel in the Old Testament sense. They were chosen to be the bride of the Lord, the bride of God, the bride of Yahweh. They were committed to, uh, they were chosen to be this privileged nation that had this relationship with God. And it was a beautiful thing. If you think about Abraham, God chose one family, right? Or one man, I should say. One man, one family, one tribe that became 12 tribes, that became a nation, that became a kingdom, that became a great number of people fulfilling Genesis 12 promise. And he used them to be the vehicle to bring the Messiah through that nation. And it was one nation among all the other nations. He chose them. And you can say, what a privilege. Yes, it is a privilege, but you know what? Um, they've had it the worse than any other nation, worse than any other people. The suffering, the difficulty, the, the persecution, the Holocaust, the Inquisition, what's, what they've gone through in the po uh, programs in, in Russia and in Europe. You would say, well, so much for chosen. Yes, because chosen is a burden. It's a burden to carry because... To know God means that there's a responsibility to do as he commanded us to do. And as believers today, we have the same responsibility as God's chosen us in Christ. To bring the body of Christ into the world and be the light of the world, there's a responsibility to make him known. And Israel had that, but broken promises. Does that mean they're gone? They're done? No. It means that Hosea has a message, and he's a northerner. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it in, in American terms, Civil War, remember the Civil War? You weren't there, but northern, right? The, the north and the south, there was a stigma, right? Uh, the north was known for some things, and the south was known for other things. And Hosea was a northerner. What that means is he lived in the time where the two kingdoms were split. That was a terrible time because... They have enjoyed, they'd enjoyed about a good uh, 70 years between David and Solomon of peace. But if you read Kings very carefully, Solomon began to really become a tyrant to the northerners, to the northern Israelis, northern Hebrew people. He began to tax them, he began to work them, he began to be such a tyrant that by the time his son came on, Rehoboam, he, it was more like slavery. To the, northern, to the northern Jews. And it got so bad, they didn't want to be part of the kingdom anymore. And of course, they, um, they didn't do so well either. But it all began by the breakup of this beautiful nation that God has chosen them to be the bride. They began so sinful and so... The, the northern kingdom didn't do well. And they set up for themselves. And this is where it gets really, really into the idolatry. This is the second theme. And in, in, so we have Hasid. Marriage, and now idolatry. Idolatry becomes this theme in Hosea that you can't miss because it's idolatry that brought them to the point. The northern kingdom, which Hosea lives in the northern kingdom, he lived at the time, well, about 10 years after uh, Amos. Amos would have been preaching in Bethel, which is just north of Jerusalem, that green part, northern part, uh, southern part of the green part. And he would have been preaching there to the north, but Hosea would have been preaching there 
uh, to the northern kingdom uh, right before Assyria came and destroyed them. And it was sort of the last message that God had for Israel. Assyria is coming. Repent. Though you've been away from me, you need to come back to me. You've been away from me as an adulterous wife, you need to come back to me. And maybe that message today needs to be said in the church. The church needs to come back and repent. Then Jesus said that to the church of Ephesus. Then Jesus said that to the churches in the, in the letters to the, in the book of Revelation, to come back, to repent, to Laodicea, even the most backslidden, terrible church that there was. He says to them to come back and repent and do, this, and do back the first works. Go back. Come back. I will give you Isop. I will uh, clothe you again. I will take care of you. You'll sup with me, Jesus said. But it was an interesting thing because remember the, the story of the, uh, of the Sinai, the marriage in the Sinai. It's such an incredible story because you think about how long it took for them to be unfaithful. Moses is up there with the tablets of stone and God delivers his powerful message to, the, you know, Moses spoke to God face to face and he comes down with the tablets and as soon as he comes down, they're committing harlotry and whoring around this golden calf, which, by the way, the golden calf had issues going back to the northern kingdom. They set up two, one in Dan, one in Bethel. One in Dan, one in Bethel, north and south of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam, the king, did this because he didn't want them to go back to Jerusalem to worship God. And he actually said, these are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Now, what can, what can possibly enter a man's mind or a woman's mind to say, God delivered us from Egypt, but these are the ones that delivered us from Egypt? How, how do you correlate the two? Uh, because adult, uh, adultery and sin and idolatry uh, blinds you to the point where you become deluded in your thinking. Now, I'll explain that more in a moment, because under the canopy of this beautiful story of Sinai, remember I painted it beautiful, beautiful but it was actually very kind of yucky, because uh, the infidelity of Baal, and eventually they ended up worshiping Baal, and Hosea, uh, there's this play on words, because the word Baal means husband or Lord, and God says, you've been playing with Baal, but I want to be your Baal. And, you know, it's like, what is God saying? Well, he wants to be their Lord, but they had another Lord, Baal, the Lord of the harvest, right? Jesus said he is the Lord of the harvest. Uh, but in that canopy, it's like, you know, it's like this. It's like the bride texting her boyfriend on, you know, right about before going on the altar or getting on the phone before she heads down with, uh, uh, with her dad down the aisle and she's calling her boyfriend up. And go, hey, you're going to meet me tonight? Wait a minute, you're getting married to this man. Well, Israel was doing the same thing. It's like being connected to God, but looking around the other way to see which other God, which other man was going to fulfill her needs. And it's the same thing for us today. I mean, we, you know, idolatry doesn't exist in 8th century Israel. It doesn't exist in, you know, some Vatican cathedral. It exists in the heart of men. That's where idolatry exists. And all of us have a, a tendency to be, be going in this direction uh, because idolatry is in the heart of man. It's in the fallen state of man. It's the idea that we have, uh, we have our God, we have our Lord, but 
In the modern world, we can lift anything to become our idol. And I'll explain a few things. Um, technology could become our idol. Many people are. I think one of the biggest idols in our nation is technology. Um, you know, Facebook goes out and people freak out. I mean, you can't function without it. Netflix goes out and people, they feel like it's the end of the world. We're such slaves to technology. And we, and there's many people today that, that, that swear on technology is going to be our salvation. Now, technology is a wonderful thing when used rightly. But when you begin to use it to such a degree that it becomes an idol, sports, ideas, careers, people, institutions, philosophies, even a flag, a flag, a, a nation, you know, has stand, you know, this is my nation and I'm going to stand for it and become an idolatrous thing more than God. And I notice in, even in churches, ministry could become an idol. The pulpit could become an idol. Uh, people are more faithful to the isms more than Jesus. You know, I stand for my ism, whatever that is, instead of the Bible. And people are more willing to defend that ism than the Bible, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, people have a strong emotion to it, you know. And, um, and it's not just in the place of God. Sometimes people have it alongside God. As, as if that makes it kosher, that makes it good. You know, I worship God, but you know, I'm, I'm also committed to this thing and faithful to this thing, and it's in our hearts. You begin to devote to it, emotion, love, affection. Um, you have a strong emotion to that. Um, it's, it's, it's really the product of being so self-centered, and it deceives us. And we all are a product of this. It's not just Israel in the 8th century. We all can become deluded in our thinking and, and say, well, alongside the Lord, I have this thing that I do. And that, that's even more self-deceiving because we think it's good. Because I'm still going to church. I'm still worshiping God. I'm still following God. But I have this thing that I'm so committed to. And that which you're committed to, alongside the Lord, is idolatry. And in fact, uh, just some archaeological stuff here. They, they discovered some of these, uh, and this is in northern Israel, Dan. They discovered the place where they worshiped this golden calf. It's, 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 it's in Dan. It's a Tel Dan. And um, they know that this was a place where pagan offerings were offered to different gods, different idols. And it right, fits along the description where they had these golden calves. So that very much could be the place. In fact, archaeologists are almost convinced that this was the place where they had the golden calf in Tel Dan, the northern part of Israel. They haven't found the Bethel one, but it existed because the Dan would exist in. And what Jeroboam did specifically is that, you know, he put one in the north and the south. Did you notice that, the north and the south? And sometimes we miss that point. Why did he do that? Of course, to keep people from going to the south, right? It's easier to go there, and if you live up the north, it's down the street. But the idea there was... It was more of a geographical thing, if you think about it, because uh, one, of the th one of the things that kings in, in Israel, the kings of Israel were called on by God is they committed the same sin, they walk in the same way as Jeroboam, the king of Israel. The way he walked, the other kings walked. And what, would, what he'd do was to keep God on the outside of the borders. You notice that Jerusalem was the worship center, was in the south. And he had two borders to keep God out, basically. That's what he was doing. 
He was basically bordering up his place to say, the worship of God can't come in here. And so many times, even as Christians, we could do that. We can border up our lives to such a degree that we don't want to let God in. As if God can be kept from borders like that, right? But you set up these things in our hearts, this idolatry in our hearts, where you, you don't really notice it sometimes, that you become already fascinated and infatuated with things. And the prophets called the nation a stiff-necked nation. Oh, they were so stiff-necked. They were committed to their calves. And sometimes I think we need to be careful, as Christians in America, that we're not committed to golden calves. We're not committed to ideas, ideologies, philosophies, things that really take away from the glory of God in our lives, the commitment, the faithfulness to Jesus that we need to have. And as we finish, this is, the, this is the, what Jeroboam, uh, the time Hosea was in. He was at the time of Jeroboam II. By the way, one fascinating thing, Israel had a stiff neck syndrome. Stephen talks about it in the book of Acts. Quite a story there. Um, but Hosea begins to preach during this time. And it was a great time of prosperity. In fact, if you were going to write a story about economic times, uh, this would have been the time. Israel was so successful. They had defeated some of their enemies. Jeroboam was able to expand its borders. It almost got as big as David and Solomon's border. Assyria was in the north, but they were so convinced that they were going to be able to defeat Assyria. They had successful campaigns, and they, they, they kept expanding their borders. Amazing prosperity. Everybody had a lot. And Hosea comes up. And he has a voice. And that voice, you know, when people have a lot, they're doing well economically. They're doing well financially. You come up with the message that says, God's not pleased with you. You know, it's not very welcomed. <laughs> because oftentimes people confuse prosperity and economic affluence for, look at me, God's blessing me. I must be doing something right. It's okay, I'm you know, going out with other gods, I'm cheating on my wife, but look, God blessed me at work. I got a promotion. You know, the houses are up 20%. can flip houses all day, all day long. His voice was going to resonate with the people of Israel. They wanted to, you know, he wasn't very popular. And he talked about religion, morals, politics of the nation because there were people oppressing each other. The, the, the politicians were running rampant with immorality. The people, the priests, the king. And he had a voice to come against that very thing that was making them prosper and happy. You know, when you come against the very thing that makes people happy, that's not good for them, but they, they, they're happy about it, your message drowns out very, very quickly. Um, you know, it's really hard to teach and preach uh, against prosperity because people love it. And people are confused that prosperity is actually from God. Now, in, in, in normal circumstances, in rightful circumstances, uh, God does bless and give people an opportunity to grow. And um, we've seen it all throughout the, uh, in history where people become believers and automatically they prosper. You know, just the very fact that they don't spend money in beer 
they prosper. <laughs> or cigarettes or weed. And then all of a sudden, hey, I got more money. There you go, brother. Praise the Lord. You're not spending it all on sinful things. You're automatically prosperous. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. No doubt about it. You prosper in the gospel because you don't go out and squander your life. That is a true thing about the gospel. That's a true thing about Jesus Christ. That's why uh, as believers, when we prosper in the Lord and God blesses economically, we're to use it for the kingdom of God. We're to use it for the gospel. We're to use it for the very thing that came into our lives and need to go into other people's lives. Uh, but normally people will automatically assume, hey, I'm rich, praise the Lord. Did the Lord bless it? That's one of the questions. You know, in fact, that could be more deceiving at times than when we're poor and when we have nothing. You seek the Lord more at that time. But when we have a lot and people go and there's a message, hey, you're not living right. This is not according to God's word or faith in, in Jesus Christ. And people become angry. That's what Hosea encountered. And they stopped caring about God in, the, in, in Israel at the time. They couldn't get anybody to care about God. They didn't want to listen to God. And Moses, I'm sorry, Hosea kept pointing them back to Moses. Remember Deuteronomy, remember Mount Sinai, remember those days. And people just stopped listening. It's like today, you go outside and you ask somebody, remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? What? Sermon on the Mount? What is that? What are we talking about? And it was like that in Israel at the time. Remember the commandments, remember Moses. Moses? Deuteronomy, hey, man, we're rich. We're doing really well. And they broke the promises. And God has a tremendous plan for Israel and his people. I'm going to read one verse on Hosea, and then we're done. And it's the last verse in Hosea. It actually says, Hosea 14, 9, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the transgressors will stumble in them. That's one of the strongest appeal that God had for his people. God's ways are right. If you're discerning, let him know them. Walk in those ways. Those ways are right. The righteous will follow, but the sinner will stumble in the ways of God. And that's how the book ends. I gave you the end because Hosea is going to bring the people back to God with a message that wasn't very popular, but it was much, much needed because Assyria was coming and the people needed to come back to God because he married them and he was going to be faithful to them. The question was, was Israel going to be faithful to God? That's always been the question. So as, as the people of God, um, we have to recognize that God's love for his people is tremendous. It's a love that can't let us go. It's a love that can't let you off either. God loves you too much to leave you the same way. God loves you too much to let you go that same way that you're going. And if you trust him, his love can't let you down because it's true faithful love. He sticks closer to you than a brother, the book of Proverbs says. But that's what Israel was experiencing, a crisis. Who are they going to follow? Were they going to follow Baal? 
in the prosperity that they had and enjoyed it because of the calves and the expansion of the borders? Or were they going to follow the Lord that was calling them back to a faithful love, a true marital love? We'll see. Gomer, Hosea, their children play a big part. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for tonight. Bless your word, Lord. Remind us of who you are, your faithful love toward us. It never ceases, Lord, and never comes to an end. Lord, but we're so fickled, we're so indecisive. We don't know if we want you or we don't know if we want something else. And, and that's been the tragedy of mankind, that no matter how much you've extended your hand uh, to your people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, uh, Lord, they've resisted it. They've stiff-necked. They hardened their hearts against you. Lord, we pray that we will not be like that, that we would be a people that are called, a people that are sanctified, a people that love you, a people that are willing to follow you, Lord, and are willing to be in that marital, covenantal relationship because, Lord, we have a greater covenant. It's the new covenant of Jesus and is in his blood and is in his death and resurrection. We thank you that we are called to be a people that is holy and sanctified. And we ask you tonight to bless your word in our hearts. Remember, help us to remember it, Lord, as it would be our marriage, our relationship, that the body of Christ is, is betrothed to Jesus and help us, Lord, to behave in a sanctified way that will honor your word and honor your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.